Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 28 through 30, but this morning we are just going to be looking at one verse, verse 28. Uh, We could have done that with every single verse in Romans, chapter 8, but this verse gets special treatment because this verse is so important, and so I wanted us to slow down, to take in the view Uh, to meditate and arrest our souls in the beauty of its truth. Romans 8, verse 28. Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Father, you know how badly we need to hear this word, how badly we need it worked deep into our hearts. Lord, you know the struggles that each one of us carries and brings this morning. You know What's going to happen next week and next month and next year? Lord, we thank you for your promise that all things work together for good. For those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So Lord, would you help us now to understand more deeply the beauty of this promise? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Raise your hand if you enjoy eating anchovies. I see two hands back there. I have three, four, there's several people here. Now, just the word itself, right, just sounds disgusting. I like fish, but, but, but I have to admit I've never even tried an anchovy, so maybe I should. Right? But if you take anchovies and you add some vinegar and you add some onions and you add some garlic and a few other ingredients, you know what you get? I call it Worcestershire sauce. I don't know what you might call it. Worcestershire, Worcestershire, whatever you call it, you get this amazing feast for your palate. If Mr. Lee and Mr. Perrins can can take anchovies and turn them into this scrumptious sauce, then what Paul wants to tell you this morning is that your God, your heavenly Father, is able to take anything that happens in your life. He can take all of your suffering, all of your pain, all your heartache, And he can work it for good. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, I imagine that Romans 8, 28 is is a verse that you have memorized, is a verse you've meditated upon. It's at least a verse you're familiar with. It's one of the most vital verses for us to remember when we are suffering and to encourage others with when they are suffering. And so this morning, I want us to to look at it piece by piece. First, I want you to see the promise of God. Second, I want you to see the recipients of God's promise. And third, I want you to see the assurance of God's promise. First, the promise of God. Since verse 17 in Romans 8, Paul has been discussing the, the suffering of God's children. 
He has told us that, that our suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us when Jesus returns. He's told us that the whole creation groans in the pains of, of childbirth until it too can share in the freedom of the glory of God. Paul has told us that we ourselves groan inwardly right, as we await and long for the resurrection of the body in the midst of our sufferings. And he's told us that in our weakness, when we don't know how to pray or what to pray, the Holy Spirit helps us, interceding for us according to the will of God. And now in verse 28, Paul gives us the crowning jewel of comfort and consolation, God's promise that all things work together for good. That is the promise of God, all things. Every detail of our suffering and our sorrow Every one of our trials and tribulations, all of our heartache, all of our hardships, all the random circumstances that, that just don't seem to bounce our way, even the sins that we commit or are committed against us that bring such misery into our lives, everything that seems to conspire against us will actually work together. It will work in concert. It will cooperate together for are good. That is the promise of God. Now, of course, Paul is not saying that all things actually are good, is he? No. The death of a loved one is not good. A, a cancer diagnosis is not good. A marriage ending in divorce or your parents getting divorced is not good. Losing a job is not good. Being rejected or bullied or made fun of at school is not good. To, to have your, your, your car AC go out and, and to, to learn that your, your sewer pipes are filled with roots and, and those thing, two things happen in the same week, that's not good, is it? None of these things in and of themselves is, is good. And yet, and yet we know because God tells us that all things work together for good. None of those things in themselves is good, and, and we must alleviate suffering wherever we, we see it. And yet God promises that every detail of every evil, every unfortunate or frustrating thing will eventually, in his time and his plan, work for our good. Now, some of your translations may read, God causes all things to work together for good. Now, for several reasons, I would argue that the, the ESV actually is the best way to translate the, the Greek underneath this English text. But Paul certainly doesn't mean that, that all things have some inherent built-in ability in themselves to work themselves together for good. No, all things work together for good because God ensures that they do. He has a purpose. He has a plan. You see it even mentioned there at the, the end of this verse, God's purpose. God sovereignly orders and arranges and uses and turns every bad thing, everything that we would say, Lord, why have you brought this into my life? Every single one of those things, God promises to turn it to our ultimate benefit. He ordains afflictions to be the lot of his children only so far as they accomplish his purpose of our good. You see, you ought not to read this verse and, and think that it's, it's God sort of showing up after the fact 
to clean up the mess that you or someone else made. Have you ever hired a, a painter or a contractor or a carpenter and he does such a horrible job that you have to fire him and hire someone else to clean up his mess and sort of you have to pay double and it really isn't even what you end up wanting in the end because it just was such a botched job to begin with. Has that ever happened to you? That's not what this verse is talking about. Right? God doesn't sort of come in after the fact and clean up the mess that someone else made. No, God is the carpenter that you come home to and you look and you think, what have you done to my house? This isn't even what I asked you to fix. And you walk in and you think, this is a disaster. And yet from the very beginning, he's had a plan. And it's going to look even more beautiful than you could ever imagine. You see, affliction has been the plan of God for your life from the start to accomplish your good. And we see illustrations of this throughout the Bible, don't we? Back in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 23, Moses tells us that what happened when the Moabites hired Balaam to curse Israel is this. God turned the curse into a blessing. Or think of Paul in a Roman prison and the way he writes in Philippians chapter 1 verse 12 that his circumstances had turned out for the greater progress of the gospel because since he was in prison the believers had preached Christ with more boldness and more courage and more people were coming to know Jesus or think of Joseph as we read this morning thrown into a pit sold into slavery by his brothers and then thrown into jail on a false charge of rape and forgotten there. But then God in his providence and his timing raises Joseph up to be second in command in Egypt, gives him the wisdom in order to deal with this seven-year famine to preserve grain so that him, he, and his family might be provided for. And we saw it there, didn't we, in Genesis 45. When Joseph revealed to his brothers that he was Joseph, he also revealed to them that God is the one who had sovereignly used their evil desires, their sinful deeds to accomplish his good purposes. He says, don't, don't be distressed. Don't be angry among yourselves because you sold me here. God sent me here. God sent me here to preserve life. It was not you who sent me here, even though it was them, wasn't it? He says, it wasn't you who sent me here. It was God. And you remember at the end of the book, after Jacob, their father, had died, and the brothers were thinking that Joseph would finally take vengeance against them for what they had done. We read those amazing words. Do not be afraid, Joseph said to them, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. You really did. You wanted to hurt me. You wanted to harm me. But God meant it for good to bring about this present result. Or think about Israel in exile. And what does Jeremiah 29 say to them? He says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you for your welfare, not for calamity, plans to give you a hope and a future. And most of all, remember the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, what does Paul say? That this most evil act in human history, Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, the spotless Son of God, nailed to a cross by the hands of Jewish leaders and, and the Romans. What can Peter say but that this event happened according to the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God? 
in order to accomplish our salvation. God, throughout his word, working all things for good. All of these stories and more prove that that God does not prevent adversity from coming into our life. Yes, but in his timing and in his providence, he deflects and he redirects every sorrow and all suffering so that it only serves to advance our good. Now, maybe you're wondering, but what is the good? Here's the promise of God. All things work together for good, but what is the good? In the stories that I've just mentioned from the Bible, we've, we've actually seen several different goods, haven't we? In the context here in Romans 8, it seems clear that the good Paul is referring to is our eternal glorification in all the ways that God is fitting us for that eternal glory by sanctifying us, by cleansing us, by renewing us and remaking us according to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. The good is ultimately that glory that verse 17 says is going to be revealed to us, as well as what he says in verse 29, being conformed to the image of his son, the fellowship of his sufferings. This is what God has predestined us unto, that we would share the likeness of Christ. And all of these trials, all of these afflictions are being used to make us more like Jesus. Again, think of all the ways the Bible speaks this truth to our hearts. Remember that picture that Jesus uses in John 15 when he says that that every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. Why? So that it might bear even more fruit. Affliction unto fruitfulness. We see that same image in Hebrews chapter 12 when, when God speaks of how he is our father and he disciplines us for our good that we might share his holiness. And I love these words. All discipline from the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Well, duh, of course, it hurts. This is not what I want. And yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, when Peter tells us that that we've been distressed by various trials so that the proof of our faith, which is more precious than gold, even though it's refined by fire, might be found to result in praise and honor and glory on the day that Jesus Christ is revealed. Trials, afflictions come to refine us, to purify us. So that we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, he can say, that I might learn your statutes. Trials come in order to sanctify us, in order to strengthen our hope, to refine our faith, to deepen and direct our loves in the right way directions. William Swan Plummer was a 19th century pastor and seminary professor, prolific author, sort of on the same level as a J.C. Ryle, but here in America. And he wrote this, anything is good for the believer that strips the world of its charms, that abases his pride, that teaches him the meaning of scripture, that exercises his faith and patience, and that makes him love and long for his home in heaven. 
Do you believe that? Do you cling to this promise of God? All things work together for good. When you hear that promise, do not think that one day in this life, you're not going to have any more evil. You're not going to have any more trials. No, that's not what the promise is. Because God is using affliction to produce for us an eternal weight of glory that far exceeds everything we are suffering. Unlike a a military boot camp or a a really difficult class in a particular major that, that is seeking to weed people out who are weak, God uses affliction to take the weak and to make them more and more strong. But here's the thing, in this life, the Christian is always weak. Even as we grow strong, we know ourselves to be weak. God is conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ, and he's bringing us all the way home, ever dependent, day by day. Through this life, we will suffer. In this life, you will have tribulation. Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God, but your final destination is secure. You may not welcome, you may not enjoy what God is doing, and yet your suffering is never futile. It's never pointless. It's it's never an accident of fate. God's promise is always true. All things work together for good. But now we have to ask, as we look at this text, who are the recipients of God's promises? Who are the recipients of this beautiful truth? Who gets to rest in this promise of God? Who has the right to be comforted by this truth? Is it a universal promise for everyone made in God's image to just, hey, see the glasses half full? Is this you know, sort of Bob Marley's three little birds who are saying, hey, don't worry about a thing because every little thing is going to turn out all right for everybody. Is that what's going on here? And the answer is no. Paul here in this passage limits the recipients of God's promise, doesn't he? And he does it in these two matching phrases, one at the beginning, one at the end of the verse. He says, for those who love God. And then he says, for those who are called according to to his purpose. These two phrases describe the same group of people, but from two different perspectives. First, from from our subjective experience and character, and then secondly, from God's purpose and grace. And when you combine these two things, what Paul is saying is that this promise is only and exclusively for believers in Jesus Christ. For those who love God from the heart, who see their sinfulness and their need of a Savior and who have embraced Jesus Christ as the only Savior and Lord. For those who desire to please him and and to, to love him and to obey his commandments. But if you are proud in your sin, if, if you are hardened in unbelief, if, if you hate the Lord and reject his commandments and reject him, that all things will not work together for your good. In fact, much the opposite. Every little thing will not be all right for you. If you persist in unbelief, all things will work out only for your ultimate judgment. And so this verse 
On the one hand, it is a comforting verse. But on the other hand, it's a heart-searching verse, isn't it? It's a verse that, that demands us and forces us to ask, do I love God? And not merely do I know some things about God, right? but do I love him? Are the affections of my heart for him and toward him? Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, he put it like this, true religion consists in large part in the religious affections, the affections of the heart of which love is chief. And so when you read this verse, you have to stop and you have to ask yourself, do I love the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Do I love to worship God? Do I love God's word and God's law? Do I love obeying God's law? Do I love God's people, the church? Do I love the name of God being magnified and, and spread across all the world? Do I love God? If there is no love for God and for his glory in your heart at all, then on what basis do you think that all things will work together for good? You so often the world thinks this, well, karma, right? Things are going to work together for good because I'm nice and I do good things and, and I pay it forward. Or other people think, well, things are going to work together for good, by golly, because of the mere force of my will. I'm going to ensure that things work together for good. But don't you see both of these ways of thinking are full of self-righteousness, full of pride, full of self-will and self-dependence. And so I plead with you who do not love God, that you would turn from your love of self and turn to Jesus Christ, who alone can enable you to love God from the heart. But if you're a Christian this morning, if you know that in your heart of hearts, you do love God, let me warn you, as you read this, this verse, and you, particularly these two phrases, that you be careful how you read them in two different directions. First, Paul is not wanting you to get so introspective Right, that you grow fearful whether you love God enough. Right? That's not his point here. Of course you don't love God enough. Right? Of course you don't love God as much as you could or should. Of course you could love him more with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's not the point that Paul's trying to make here. His point is not this promise is for those who love him enough. No, his point is, do you love him? rather than hate him? And do you long to love him more? Do you say with the man whose words we sung this morning, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. If that's your heart, then this promise is for you. But there's another warning that I think we have to hear as we hear those words for those who love God. You have to be careful that you don't read this verse as if all things work together for your good because you love God. All things work together for our good, not because we love God. That would be no different than the pagan view of karma, right? of self-righteousness. But our legalistic hearts are naturally bent in that direction. Well, look at me. I love God. See how everything's just working out for good? No, no. Yes, this promise is true if and only if you love God, but not because you love God. This promise is true, and this is why Paul includes the second phrase there, 
to eradicate any boasting or pride as we cling to the promise. This promise is true because you have been called according to God's purpose, according to God's grace in Jesus Christ. If you love God, what does John tell us? It's because he first loved you. He first chose you. He first called you. We'll talk more about this next Sunday as we go on to verse 29 and, and 30. But, but, but Paul is saying here, if you love God, it's because he has effectually summoned you into a relationship with himself. He has convinced you of your sin and misery. He has enlightened your mind and the knowledge of Christ. He has renewed your will so that you might embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. He has chosen you from all eternity. He has called you to himself in the appointed time. And through your suffering, he is making you more and more like his son, more and more into what he has predestined you to be. A true son or daughter of God who loves him with all of your heart. And he is bringing you home to glory. If you love God, this promise is true, but it's not because you love God. It's because the same decree that ordained your salvation has also ordained your afflictions to be the means by which your salvation comes in fullness. So we've seen the promise, we've seen the recipients of the promise, but lastly, let's think about the assurance of God's promise. And you see it there in those first three words, and we know, we know. Paul had confidence in this promise that it was true. He knew it was true, A, because the Bible had taught it before he wrote it. The Bible in the Old Testament even affirms that all things work together for good. God is at work through our suffering. Paul also knew it because of the recorded experience of men like Joseph and Job. And Paul knew it because of his own experience. He had assurance that God would keep his promises. God would keep his word. And so brothers and sisters, what about you? Do you know that God's promise is true? And do you cling to this promise so that no matter what happens in this coming week, no matter what happened last week, you know that all things work together for good. How badly we need to hear this promise. How badly we need to be assured that it is true. Because in the midst of suffering, in the midst of affliction, in the midst of unanswered prayer, or prayer not being answered the way we had hoped it would be answered, it is so easy to lose hope. It is so easy to think that God has abandoned us and forgotten us. But this text tells you that God is always at work for your good. And if you were to go on and read, you would see it say that if God, verse 32, if God has, has freely given us his son, how will he not also freely with him give us all things? His hand is on the steering wheel and it's never removed. And he shows that to you, he proves that to you because he has given his son. He has forsaken his son in wrath on the cross so that we might never 
be forsaken, so that we might never be abandoned, so that we might be assured that God will stop at no lengths to work every single thing for our good. Some of you perhaps have hit that, that stage in life where when you travel, you take your own pillow or your own pillows, right? As in my case. This verse is a pillow for our head, for our knees, a pillow that we must take with us everywhere we go. So no matter what happens, we can rest our weary heads on it. We can cushion our knees with it. We can support ourselves in all of the suffering that God has ordained for us to walk through. Memorize this verse if you have not memorized it before and preach it to your heart as often as you can, as often as you walk through darkness and have no light. But here's how I want to close this morning. It's not just for you. It's for your brothers and your sisters in Christ. As you have opportunity, share that pillow with others, as it were. Don't be afraid to encourage your brother and your sister with the truth of this verse. Help others to be assured, even as you are growing in assurance of this promise. Sometimes we, we say, look, don't just quote Romans 8, 28 to this person. And what we mean when we say that is don't flippantly, merely quote this, this promise in a glib manner, right? Even before you've even heard someone's story or as if nothing else needs to be said or, or as, if, as if this is, this is sort of the, the, one, the one kind of magic bullet. If you know this, you know everything you need to know. All we do when we approach the text in this way is to make light of their pain and light of their suffering and we misrepresent God. But it is possible to, to take someone's sorrow with all seriousness. It is possible to be a good listener, to be filled with sympathy and compassion and to apply with skill and wisdom the truth of this promise at the right time in the right manner. And so what I want to encourage you with is to pray for that wisdom. Pray that the, this, this text that has so powerfully affected you, assuming that it has or that it will, use this promise to minister to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Why would we not want to encourage ourselves and those around us who are suffering with this truth? Is there any more vital truth for us as we walk through suffering? Is there any more vital truth that can effectively overwhelm our sorrow and our suffering and steal us for whatever might come our way? And so I want to encourage you carefully right, to be the channels of grace, the instruments of God's comfort to others. Make this verse your own. Let that seed grow deep within your heart and bear fruit of, of confidence, of trust, of faith and hope in your own life, day by day, moment by moment, ever increasingly. And as you have an opportunity to walk next to someone else who is suffering, you're able to say to them, God has comforted me in my affliction, as Paul does in 2 Corinthians 1, so that I might comfort you in any affliction. The truth of the promise of God is never failing. All things work together for good. And here's how I've seen that in my own experience. And though you may not see it yet, or though even that good that God is working may not be the good that you would want worked, 
God's promise is true. His word will not fail. Brothers and sisters, cling to this promise of God with all your heart. Know that he is clinging to you. He will never let you go. The righteous judge of all the earth will always do what is right. He does all things well, and he will never let you go. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this beautiful word. Lord, may this verse mean even more to us than it already does. Lord, may we have grace to believe it anew and afresh every day. Lord, you know our sinful hearts. You know how prone we are to bitterness, how prone we are to unbelief. Yet, Lord, you also know how deep are our sorrows, how hard are our lives in so many ways at so many times. Lord, would your word be our rock and our refuge? Would you help us, O Lord, not only to believe this promise, but to to use this promise in a way that glorifies you, in a way that encourages the body of Christ. Lord, we thank you so much for what Paul has written for us. It is your truth, your promise, meant for us. Oh Lord, help us to believe it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.